This is Democracy in Lockdown, a weekly virtual conversation on the latest news about the coronavirus crisis and what it means for our democracy. This podcast is presented by Unlock Democracy. We campaign for a better democracy and a new written constitution built and owned by the people. Hello and welcome to our seventh Democracy in Lockdown episode. My name is Matthew. I am Unlock Democracy's membership and fundraising assistant. And today with me is Sarah. Hello, I am Sarah and I'm Unlock Democracy's policy and communications manager. Thanks for all the people who attended our Democracy After Lockdown online session yesterday. It was fantastic. I found it fascinating and I'm sure you did too. But it doesn't end there. We've got a whole great series of events coming up next week. And you can join these events. That's our Democracy Gathering. It'll be a whole week of ideas and discussions about a more democratic future. We'll be joined by Open Democracy's Adam Ramsey, Danny Paffard from Green New Deal UK, Nick Dearden, the Director of Global Justice Now, and so many other great speakers. Check out the event in the description below and make sure you register ahead of next week. So last week, we talked about the experiences of workers during lockdown and whether the government has been doing enough and enough in the right way to support them. So in the podcast this week, we're going to be looking at the hidden decision makers who are shaping the government's response to COVID-19. We want to lift back the curtain on how decisions are really made in UK politics. So this episode, we're going to be exploring how influence works, who has influence over the government's political choices, and what are the real life consequences of political choices being made by a small handful of interests. And we're going to be asking what this means for our democracy. So stay with us. So to kick off this podcast, we're going to be doing a roundup of some of the key news stories from the past week. So the immigration bill was back in Parliament and that sets out uh, the post-Brexit immigration system that we're going to be adopting. The bill had its second reading in the House of Commons and it was voted through by a majority of MPs. Just as a quick overview um, of what the bill is and what it's about um, and some of the issues that were raised this week. Um, essentially what's happened with this bill is that the, it sets out the framework for how the UK government is going to be making uh, decisions about immigration um, post-Brexit. What this bill uh, doesn't do is set out the actual specifics of the immigration system. Uh, the Joint Council uh, for the Welfare of Immigrants has raised some concerns about how in the actual details of the bill, ministers have been given powers to decide the kind of specifics of the immigration system by changing primary or secondary legislation. Um, this is known as delegated legislation. You may have heard of kind of Henry VIII powers before. Um, JCWI has raised concerns about the kind of mechanisms that are going to be put in place to prevent another Windrush happening. There's also concern about potentially uh, extending the hostile environment to EU nationals in the UK. And I think what we're seeing with this bill, particularly in terms of the details uh, being handed over to uh, ministers, is that Parliament is basically being used to write a blank cheque. Um, particularly when we think about um, the Windrush scandal, for example, um, the fact that the government is going to have the power to set the specifics of the immigration bill kind of at their whim uh, means that, you know, something like the Windrush scandal is potentially more likely in the future. 
another story that was in the news this week was that the Welsh government is not going to be providing uh, bailout support to tax haven owned firms. So businesses which have HQs and recognised tax havens are not going to be eligible for COVID-19 financial support from the Welsh government. At the moment, the definition of tax haven could be a little bit narrow. So, for example, this won't apply to firms registered in Jersey, but it does apply to firms registered in the Isle of Man. But other tax havens that are covered by um, the Welsh government's decision include the kind of Turks and Caicos Islands, uh, the British, British Virgin Islands, Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. Um, the Welsh Government joins a fair number of countries that have introduced conditions on bailouts. Um, so Poland and Denmark were among the first EU countries to attach conditions to state support for businesses affected by COVID-19, um, which essentially means that large companies that want to access uh, financial support must be paying taxes in that country. Another development that didn't quite hit the headlines this week, but one that we were talking about in the Unlock Democracy team, was a detail that was slipped into the government's plan to rebuild, so their kind of their COVID-19 recovery strategy, and tucked away on page 46 of that document, the government says that it's going to uh, that COVID-19 requires a rapid re-engineering of government structures um, and political institutions um, to build new long-term foundations for the UK. Um, this was spotted by Dr. Alan Green, um, and I picked it up on Twitter. Um, and he raised some really important uh, questions about this particular development. So, you know, are, he said, you know, are these changes going to be temporary uh, as emergency measures as they're supposed to be? Or are they going to be permanent and transformative, which they're not supposed to be? You know, does the government really have a mandate to fundamentally re-engineer the state, um, un, you know, under the cover of a crisis? Because if this crisis hadn't happened, then it, you know, I don't think we would consider the government to have the mandate to fundamentally re-engineer the state. This brings up a kind of broader question about executive power in the UK and how decisions are made, which we're going to get onto shortly. But, you know, this kind of really brings up the question, should the fox be allowed to redesign the hen house? Because that's what's happening. So that's all for the roundup of the news this week. Let's kick off. Just to start off, I think one, one thing to note is that the UK public already thinks, on the whole, that our political system is rigged to advantage the rich and powerful. The Hansard Society's 29 of political engagement found that 63% of, of British people think that the government is rigged to advantage the rich and powerful. And when you dig into how decisions are made in our political system, I think that, you know, that is very much revealed to be true. In the UK, decision making and power is highly concentrated. So in Westminster, we have this kind of elective dictatorship. So for the first past the post electoral system produces majoritarian governments, generally speaking. The government controls the legislative agenda of the House of Commons. And we have a political system in which there is real executive domination and no codified constitution to actually constrain the power of government. We then also have a kind of donations and lobbying system where influence over political choices and political decisions becomes the preserve of those individuals and companies that can actually afford to lobby and donate to political parties. We have a real geographic and institutional concentration of power in Westminster that really sets the UK apart from almost any other democracy in the world. Um, and on top of this kind of institutional concentration of power, there's also a concentration of economic power in the city of London, which kind of really relates back to the decisions that get made. And um, this is a product of a very strong 
cultural and historic ties between the city of London and the city of Westminster, where the UK Parliament is. And what we end up seeing is the kind of interests of the financial heart of the UK really dominating political decision making and political choices. And that really distorts uh, that really distorts our democratic processes, just as a kind of little aside, really. Even in the Magna Carta, the City of London is the only place to have its own clause, which guarantees that, quote, it shall have its ancient liberties and free customs, both by and water. We also have the City of London Remembrancer, which is kind of the symbolic role that's played by one of the City of London Corporation's chief officers, where they can sit in the House of Commons and observe, uh, observe what's going on. And it's kind of there to symbolically make sure that the House of Commons represents the interests of the City of London. So this tie between our politics and our economy are really deeply entrenched in the UK. And we kind of have a system where money flows from the city of London into Westminster and pumps through the veins of our politics. Um, but we actually know very little about who's exerting influence over decision-making. So the way that our structures and institutions uh, are currently set up are really opaque uh, when it comes to transparency about decision making. So I'm going to just really quickly touch on the lobbying register and political donations before kind of handing over to Matt to get his thoughts um, and kind of and he'll talk about some of the practical implications of this. The lobbying register in the UK does not really capture anything meaningful. So what it covers is uh, consultant lobbyists, so euphemistically we call this the public affairs industry. Um, so if you're, if you're hired as a lobbyist in the public affairs industry, industry in a kind of agency, then you do have to register and you kind of have to submit details every quarter on the clients that you represent. But you don't have to declare, you know, how much money you're spending. You don't have to declare, um, you know, what you're actually discussing. The register also only captures um, lobbying done to kind of ministers and kind of really high profile um, really high profile uh, politicians and officials so for example if you're lobbying an mp that's not captured similarly um if you're if you're an in-house lobbyist working for shell then you don't have to register you know if you're shell and you hire an agency to deliver that work then you have to register so i mean it's just kind of littered with loopholes a really interesting comparison actually is with the lobbying register for the Scottish Parliament, which is much more comprehensive than the UK lobbying register. So that covers ministers, civil servants, MSPs, special advisors. You have to declare, you know, you have to declare what the meeting was about. Um, you have to declare what the purpose of lobbying is. So I had a quick check actually um, before recording and the UK register currently has 161 registrants. The Scottish register currently has 1300 registrants so i mean if you're telling me that there's more lobbying going on in scotland than in the uk parliament i mean i'm not really going to believe you i think our register is currently just listed with loopholes you then also have a system of donations which is which is pretty much unlimited so you do have to declare donations to political parties that are over seven and a half grand but again this is kind of filled with loopholes so for example um, if you make a donation to a members association then the members association does have to declare but you can make that donation anonymously to that association so again we really don't have a good idea of who is lobbying how much is being spent and who is making donations and kind of more importantly you know what influence they are actually exerting over the political uh, over political processes and we can only really know that if we have access to the information which we don't really so that's a short overview of the way that our system currently works and what this kind of means is that power is highly concentrated in London, both in Westminster kind of and the city of London. 
and you really do have an ability if you're a, if you're an individual or a company with enough money to purchase access and influence largely outside of public scrutiny so bringing it back to the COVID-19 context, I think what we're experiencing now, this is kind of public health crisis, is making problems that already existed in our political system much more acute. So the government is making political choices that have life and death consequences. With the Coronavirus Act, we saw the government getting expansive emergency powers with very weak checks and balances. And they're handing out billions in public money um, in support packages and unconditional bailouts. And as the public, we, we don't really know how those decisions are being made. Um, you know, there's a very small handful of people that are probably lobbying behind the scenes to influence, you know, where this money goes and how it's distributed. And we kind of don't get a look in. Um, and that's really, distort, you know, fundamentally distorting um, our democratic political processes. Um, I know that you're going to get to some examples of, you know, where this decision making, where this hidden decision making is having real world consequences in the COVID-19 crisis, Matt, but I kind of just wanted to see what your take is on this general state of affairs. Absolutely. And um... I, by the way, just as an aside, I really enjoyed your um, public affairs point. It's always seemed like one of the most ridiculous titles in in politics, given that um, they are definitely not working in, in the public interest. Um, it's very Orwellian language. Um, but yeah, what, what really strikes me about all this that you've been saying, Sarah, is how these political structures, some of which are, you know, hundreds of years old, some of them, you know, a bit more recent, but still Victorian or Edwardian, really tie in with some more recent developments um, that we've seen in our politics. And that the way that those two things are sort of synthesized, the way they come together, um, has been incredibly, incredibly damaging and has made this whole mess a lot worse. If you like this podcast, click the subscribe button and follow us on social media. So I think like one thing that I particularly want to highlight um, is I think the way that the scale of contracting and the lack of scrutiny that, that the contracting sees has really got so much greater over the past few years and how that's really coming to a head during the COVID-19 crisis. So obviously governments always have to buy services, buy goods from other people. You know, no government is ever going to be able to operate purely on its own on its own steam um, but there really is very little scrutiny on how the government buys services from a private company and how they reach that decision there is at the moment no unified register um, of all the contracts that central government departments have with private companies um, ministers are able to suspend competitive tendering processes as they've done during the crisis just uh, recently, I think at the end of last week, The Guardian published an article revealing that £1 billion in contracts have been awarded without competitive tendering processes during the crisis. Um, and the reason this is getting a whole lot worse now is because ultimately the government has to move quickly. And in order to move quickly, the government can't afford lengthy tendering processes. And so I think that really illustrates um, you know, quite how bad it's got and quite how unprepared our government structures have been for this crisis, that they are now required to essentially go begging to some of the largest and least competent companies in the business. You know, we're, we're talking about companies like G4S, um, to companies like Carillion before it collapsed in 2018. You know, these are companies that often have really bad records, but 
government has to go back to them again and again because they are giant and because government is no longer able um, to perform public services without them. Um, and so, yeah, I think that really that really ties in nicely with what you're what you were saying. And obviously, you know, the lack of transparency that you were talking about, Sarah, um, when you combine that with um, the sheer scale of contracting that government is having to undertake now um, and the speed with which it's having to act, we're getting this sort of toxic mixture, um, which is sort of accelerating, um, accelerating the whole mess to, to an enormous degree. Yeah, I, you know, I caught that Guardian analysis as well. And um, they were talking about how I think it's 177, contra uh, 177 state contracts have been handed out without tender um, due to the new fast track rules. And that includes uh, the provision of food parcels, the provision of PPE. I think it was Open Democracy, actually, which has pointed out the Deloitte, for example, has been hired to deliver PPE mm. and they have really close ties with ministers, with senior advisors, and that includes, you know, links with the cabinet office minister, Chloe Smith. So, you know, I think in a situation like COVID-19 in particular, there are some really difficult choices that every single government is going to have to make. And one of the key questions that we need to be asking is, you know, what happens when there is a tension between business interests and public interests? And this is a really live question at the moment because, you know, we're talking about when to reopen the economy, when to, when to end lockdown, should we be sending teachers back to school, should we not? And as the public in a democracy, we need to, we need to be able to know how political choice is being made it's not only something that we need to know, it's also something that we need to be able to hold government ministers and politicians to account for. And in our current system, we're kind of really lacking both on the informational side, but we're also lacking in the kind of, in our ability to hold the government to account on the choices that it's making. And I think what we're seeing with the current system is that there's a tendency towards privileging, you know, economic interests over public interests, almost purely because it is those businesses and individuals with the money to lobby, with the money to influence, with the money to donate, uh, that are able to have their voices heard and that are able to kind of sway political processes in their favour. Absolutely. And one thing I just wanted to like add to that is that this isn't something that you can just sort of, you know, talk about in a chat like we're doing now, but it's something that you can actually document. As I said before, um, government doesn't currently keep a single unified register of all the sort of live or current contracts that it holds um, as central government. Um, but an analysis done by the Institute for Government in 2018 revealed that government spending with what, what is termed strategic suppliers, so those are suppliers that provide more than £100 million in government contracts um, in a single year, government spending with those suppliers has risen from 30% to 18% between 2012 and 2018. Um, and what Sarah is saying about privileging, um, privileging these larger suppliers um, applies on a number of different levels. So um, Sarah explained really nicely um, how 
a lack of a transparent register, how a lack of transparency in donations means that politicians privilege the voices of these companies. But these companies work really closely with government departments already as well. A lot of the accounting firms, for example, do loads and loads of like pro bono accountancy work with the Treasury, um, with the opposition front bench, with the government front bench as well. Um, and the immense influence that they have runs really, really deep and is something that really needs to be confronted if we're going to make sure that tendering processes are fully democratic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this kind of raises some really broad questions about the state of our democracy that are both about principle and kind of practical consequences. So, you know, there's kind of the principle question, which is, you know, what decision making power should the government and the lobbyists that influence them have? But then there's also a question about, you know, what kind of society do we want to live in? And, you know, are the consequences of the government's policy making and decision making creating the kind of society that we all want to live in? Uh, so, Matthew, I don't know if you've seen uh, the latest report by IPPR, uh, which I think is called Who Wins and Who Pays Rentier Power and the COVID Crisis. And they've basically done an analysis of the government's jobs, job retention support scheme. Mm. So they've broken down where that money goes. And IPPR found that 45% of furlough support is currently being given to landlords, banks and lenders. And the IPPR has basically warned that this approach is going to worsen inequalities. So you're going to have low income families racking up massive debt. Um, so the working poor are going to be racking up more and more yeah. debt while the asset owning wealthy are kind of going to be fine and coming out of this, you know, fine and, and if not better. And they've recommended some really practical solutions like considering banning dividends and share buybacks so that support for large businesses doesn't actually end up subsidizing shareholders of high pay executives. But I think we're kind of seeing a replay to some extent of uh, what happened in the financial crisis. You know, um, Professor Philip Alston, who was the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, he came to the UK and did a kind of analysis of what, what the impact of austerity had been in the UK. And he published his report in 2018 and kind of noted that although the UK was at the time the fifth largest economy in the world and the leading centre of global finance, austerity had kind of disproportionately impacted the poorest. And he concluded that, you know, what he said was poverty is a political choice. Um, and he went on to say that austerity could have easily spared the poor if the political will had existed to do so. Resources were available to the Treasury um, in the budget, which could have transformed the situation of millions of people living in poverty. But the political choice was made to fund tax cuts for the wealthy instead. And I think, you know, we can talk about lobbying and transparency in the abstract and we can talk about problems in our existing institutions and kind of the there are solutions um, to making our politics more transparent but you know we really do have to recognize that the overall effect of the way that our political system is currently configured means that the political choices being made by the government are disproportionately um, benefiting a very small number of people and disproportionately harming the vast, you know, the majority of the public and making inequality much worse. Absolutely. Um, it's always important not to lose sight of the, the really, really terrible material consequences of all this, because, yeah, for one thing, it just seems absolutely right as standard that lobbying should be transparent if lobbying should happen at all, um, that it should be clear who 
our government, our members of parliament who ostensibly work for us are actually listening to and who they're working for. Um, but all of those things have quite serious like payouts, right? They end up repeatedly and consistently privileging the financial interests and the material interests of some of the wealthiest people in this country and, and people who already um, already have the means to get on quite well. Um, so absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the other thing that we also have to consider is that political decision making doesn't only influence kind of the levels of inequality in our country, but it also relates directly to you know, the protection or lack of protection for some really fundamental rights that the public broadly supports. Um, I don't know if you've seen Open Democracy's latest action around freedom of information um, yeah. relating to uh, the government's data deals with the US tech giants um, yeah. around kind of track and trace and kind of various uh, tech schemes that need to be set up to respond to COVID. Um, but I mean, for those of you who um, who haven't heard about this action, um, I mean, setting setting out the broader context first. Um, I mean, essentially, the government has done some data deals between NHS England and Google, Microsoft, I think Amazon as well, um, Palantir, um, and a couple of other tech companies, and. Um, a freedom of information request was made to kind of get get hold of what the details of these agreements actually were because you know the NHS England contains private personal sensitive data and you know we as the public have a right to know what is being done with our private data um, so this freedom of information request was submitted to get to get a hold on kind of what the details of these deals actually were and the Department for Health and Social Care actually delayed uh, delayed publishing its response to this Freedom of Information request because it wanted to weigh up the tech uh, the tech firm's quote commercial interests. So Open Democracy is now threatening to sue the government um, to get hold of this information. And Corey Crider of Foxglove, which is a digital rights startup, told uh, the New Statesman Tech. Um, section that you know the idea that Amazon or Palantir's commercial interests might outweigh the public's right to know what's going on with this data deal is frankly crazy and Mary Fitzgerald who is the editor of Open Democracy um, also told uh, the New Statesman text section that uh, it seems the government is trying to evade scrutiny over this unprecedented and highly controversial deal the pandemic cannot be used as an excuse for delaying or docking accountability. Um, she, she said as well that, you know, millions of us rely on the, on the NHS and we deserve immediate answers about who holds our personal information, which, you know, I think, you know, our not democracy kind of fully supports that. The broader point is that the government is elected to make political choices, absolutely, but those political choices relate to our ways of life and our security and our rights. And at the moment, we just don't have a lot of, we as the public don't have a lot of control over the decisions that the government is making. So that's really comprehensive. Um, we've covered a lot of ground, um, but I just wanted to see whether we could perhaps tie that together in just a few sort of basic conclusions or recommendations. Obviously, this is going to be a massive, a really massive issue going forward, especially as Sarah says, with the amount of, of data being transferred to, to tech giants um, and with the trade bill coming up 
um, in Parliament as well, it's clear that these questions are only going to get more important. So one thing I think that everybody probably agrees on and that has really come out of this conversation is that we really need genuine transparency. So we need a proper register of interests with enough detail to provide journalists, um, watchdogs, the public with the information they need to hold the politicians who work for them um, properly to account. I think it's also fairly clear that we're gonna to need to democratize tendering processes and consider what that actually means. Um, because what we're looking at, I think, as, as Sarah proved quite nicely, is that what's gone wrong with the way that government um, buys goods and services from these massive companies uh, is not something that we're going to be able to solve overnight. And it's something that's not just abstract, but has really serious consequences for the services that we pay for and the services that are provided to us. Um, and I think finally, one thing that should have been done years ago and is, is pretty simple, you know, you could have told us this, but it is to cap donations to political parties and really do everything we can to remove money from politics. Um, because, you know, for all that, you know, transparency matters and sunlight is a great disinfectant, as the saying goes, it's really important at the end of the day that money doesn't speak louder than than people in politics. And one of the only ways to do that is to take money out of the equation. Yeah, and just to, just to wrap up as well, following on from what Matt said, we really need to look at political and economic inequality as being two sides of the same coin. If only a small Absolutely. handful of people are able to influence government decision-making because of lax rules around lobbying, because of lax rules around donations, because of a, the highly over-centralized nature of the British state, this has really serious consequences for our society. So we now want to hear from you about what you would like to hear on our next episode. So please do let us know by leaving your comments on our social media channels and tagging in hashtag democracy in lockdown. So as I said earlier in the episode, next week we're going to be hosting our democracy gathering. That's five online sessions and we're going to be discussing where we are now and where we need to go next. We're going to have loads of great speakers, some of whom I've already announced to you just now. Um, but we want you to come and join that conversation with us. So make sure you don't miss out. Get your tickets today and you'll find a link to get tickets in the description of this podcast episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week. All right. See you guys. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be coming back next Thursday with more. Remember, you can reach us on social media and tell us what you think we should discuss next week. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share. Stay home, stay safe.